It's Tuesday, May 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Good to see you guys. Nice Welcome to see back. everybody survived Memorial Day weekend. Made it through. Yeah. We were all on the road at various points. You, Bill, you were up in Connecticut. I was in Connecticut, yes. I was mostly on the road, getting <laughs> up to Connecticut and back. And you were down in Georgia? Yeah, and I was not on the road. I mean, quick flight straight down to oh, okay. Georgia. And it was, it was just, yeah, went down there Wednesday, got back yesterday, and played golf for uh, yeah, four straight days. I was just going to say, 96 holes of golf? Close, 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 and it was you know beautiful weather. Now you were up in Jersey. I was up in Jersey, and so but that was just twenty four hours of do- driving, so nothing, uh, nothing all that bad. Oh, that's right. You you had family that came in. Uh, no, family that was here. No. What are you hiding are from? Us? <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Um, we have an increasingly intriguing deal. In the food industry, but let's start with the big macro because a bunch of data came out today. Uh, durable goods orders up almost one percent in April. Consumer confidence up higher than expected. It's the second highest level since two thousand eight. And the Case Shiller Index, the housing index, uh, home prices up almost twelve and a half percent over the last year rising albeit at a slower rate and all of it you bill you step back you look at all it's it's all it's a good thing ron gross noted pessimist ron gross is not in the room because he, he I, I, I don't know you look at all this data everything's looking pretty darn good are grills durable goods we were talking about all the sure. grilling i mean that's a durable good yeah, right sure uh, i believe that my for something that i did Around one of these microphones, I don't know what kind of show it was. Probably, probably not this show, but okay. one of your many other shows. Yep. Uh, and and my reckless prediction for the year is that we would hear before the end of the year uh, the words overheating apply to the economy. Not that it was, but like some people starting to say overheating and economy in the same sentence. I I, don't, I haven't heard it yet, uh, but I I think that. It's still. I'm, I'm sticking by. I'm not backing off my prediction <laughs> just yet. The economy's not overheating, uh, but it's uh, there are enough decent signs out there that uh, people could start worrying about. It. And, and of course, that the, the logical step will be that the the Fed will start increasing uh, interest rates or giving more hints by the end of the year that uh, increased interest rates are not an impossibility. Right? I mean, we'll just start touching the edges of of that. Uh, before anything gets too crazy. We talk a lot about overheating. I mean, I guess it's the I mean, the stock market in general because of this whole IPO market, right? And it seems like everybody's going public, so maybe that has something to do with it. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're in a tech bubble yet. I mean, uh, if I start hearing about a Pied Piper IPO, I'm out. Right. Like, I'm, that's, that's your <laughs> we're cell, all out. That's your cell I, flag. I, yeah, I mean, there's some stuff that, that is, there's some speculative excess to some of the things that have IPO'd. Um, but I think that the excess is being taken out reasonably quickly. You've still got enough uh, people sort of in a, a Pavlov's dog response. Oh, a tech IPO, let me buy, right? I mean, that's just – there is enough of a market for that, whatever it is, uh, believing that they'll be rewarded with a quick 30 to 80 uh, percent. And that is turning out to be uh, less true than used to be the case. When you look at the housing data – uh, and again, some people are going to look at this and, and use it 
Who are these people that you're talking about? <laughs> are they good people? Are they bad people? I like to think they're all good people, but they all have their own agendas. But and and really, this is working out of the point you were making earlier that there there are always going to be people who take data and they view it through their lens, and they will say, "Well, this supports my theory that." In, oh, the that's mar- almost everybody. The market I mean, is it, overheating. Right. That is, but just for listeners, are there viewers today? We've got some cameras think, set up. Well, yeah, you know, but this doing. is for the listeners. Nobody watches this. Do no, they? I, I can't. Some imagine. people listen. Yeah, dozens, dozens, dozens of listeners. Uh, all just for the media. Those are in case there's anybody wondering this. Almost everybody applies the data that they want to support their own point that they've that they've got ahead of time. That that is ninety percent of what you will see on on sort of financial TV. Because there are so many data points, and people do have things that they've already said in public, and they have to support them. And there's always something. You know, you can take the Case-Shiller numbers and apply them in, in whatever way you want. Uh, I would say housing prices are up 12%. That, in a to quote uh, Shakespeare, you know, no, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Right. I mean, is it good that housing prices are up 12 percent? Well, I don't know. Are you trying to buy a house today? Yeah. <laughs> it's not good. Right. You know, if, if, that's, if you're looking to buy. Yeah, but if, definitely you, not if you own a house and you're thinking about selling it tomorrow, that's great. You know, but if, if you're getting a little overconfident about uh, housing prices these days, uh, checking it out on Zillow too much, um, you, you know, it's, it's not sustainable. It has never been sustainable for housing prices to go up. 12% year over year, and it will not be in the future. Uh, Jason, is there anything uh, that you look at this morning um, that affects how you view, in particular, retail stocks? I'm, I'm thinking primarily about the consumer confidence numbers, but given the universe of retail stocks that you look at, is does this data make you more bullish? Uh, is it... You know, is it a, a non-story? It's hard to say. I mean, the, the consumer confidence numbers are somewhat backward-looking. You know, they're they're kind of taking a preliminary look back at me. I like to think it's because of all of the confidence we exude from our shows here. You know, we're really making people feel better about things. I hope so. Uh, Ron Gross accepted. Yeah, that's that's the exception, obviously. <laughs> How I mean, dark I, is he? I haven't been on a show. I, you know what? I shouldn't take bit. that many shots at Ron. No, he's not. He's not dark, but he is. Um, he is more likely cautious. He is cautious. He is more likely to be glass half empty than glass half full. I would say, yeah, if you took a survey of listeners, probably 7 out of 10 would say glass half empty guy. Yeah. But, you know, who knows? Maybe he changes that. Uh, he's not Dr. Doom. Kind of data, but he's, right. not, he's not Rubini. Right. <laughs> I think that most – Bill, I think, makes a great point there. Virtually any walk, whether finance, politics, whatever, I mean, other than history and, like, things that are facts, I mean, when you take data, I mean, you're going you're gonna to formulate your own opinion. Regardless of what the data says, I mean, you can take that data and, and just kind of shape it however you like, and that's what we see. And it's it's fun to prognosticate. I mean, I read through the housing report. And I think there are a few takeaways that are at least worth noting. I mean, you see headlines go go both ways with it, uh, but I mean, prices while slowing down, they're higher than a year ago. That's good. I thought it was interesting that mortgage rates are near a seven month low, but and that it noted recent comments from the Fed pointed to bank lending standards as a problem. Yeah, that kind of that, that made me do a little bit of a double take because I, I mean, if by problem they mean that bank lending rates or that that bank lending standards are too stringent now, uh, I mean, I'd I'd be a little nervous there with that because I mean, really, it's those lax lending standards that got us into this mess to begin with. I mean, if you're going to buy a house, I mean, I can't think of 
a, a situation where maybe you know standards should be tighter. I mean, that's where you really need to be tight. You're talking about a quarter of a million dollars in most cases when people are buying homes, and uh, yeah, you better back that up with some good documentation. So I'd rather see them a little bit more uh, strict. And then it, you know, the final part was it noted that there are there are a lot of student debt that is out there, and that's been a big story I think here over the past years. This really this phenomenal. Uh, student debt figure that's getting out of control. That's another issue altogether. But that it prevents people from getting in, in the housing market. I, I would actually argue that there could be a silver lining there because I think that most people with that debt, uh, they're going to skew younger. And I don't think they should necessarily be buying homes. And they need, they need to be more nimble. They need to be able to relocate at the drop of a hat. Buying a home does not allow you to do that. I mean, there's a lot more walk and uh, a lot more work involved when you have to do that. So I, I actually think that's a bit of a silver lining there. Of, you know the the student debt issue that uh, you know it, yeah for every buyer there's a seller and so depending on on what the data says if you're looking to buy a home maybe today's news is decent maybe you're going to get a better price if you're looking to sell a home well maybe it's not all that great but you know houses aren't necessarily as liquid as stocks so by the way ladies and gentlemen uh, just another insight into what goes on behind the scenes in most media and that is uh, Jason says that he he read the housing report, which is not the case for most people who are <laughs> opining about it. They read the article. They read the article written by someone who read the housing who might who have might read have read. Yes, yeah, yeah, sometimes might be, they just hyperlink. Yes, there may be three or four sources away from anybody who actually read it, um, but not Jason. <laughs> He's here. Speaking Actually, of the housing I report, I was watching CNBC this morning. Robert Schiller of the Case Schiller Index was on CNBC. And you hang with him. He's on your show like he every other week. He was, he was on the show once upon a time. He was here at The Motley Fool yeah. uh, a couple of years ago on his birthday, actually. But one of the things I love about Schiller, and look, the guy has an index named yeah. after him. <laughs> if anyone has the ability to just uh, have a, an extra pep in their step when they're walking around, it's someone like that. He is still just this incredibly humble guy. Pretty and, calm. Pretty calm, Pretty and calm. also more than willing to say, "Yeah, I don't know." We, you know, when he's asked, you know, it's like, "Well, look, this is your index. When you look at it, you know, nineteen out of twenty cities, it's on the rise." Well, you know, I guess that could happen, but you know, you have to keep it like he is just the most measured person in responding to questions, which is all the more refreshing when you, you know, to your point, Bill, that the media is constantly looking for black and white statements out of their guests. Well, he's an actual economist, right? He doesn't just play one on TV, which is really the the majority of economists that you will see are just people who play economists on TV. And he follows what is the ironclad rule of intelligent economists, which is you do not predict a direction and a date at the same time. Like you can say, yes, this is a bubble and it will burst at some point in time, which is kind of what he is most famous for. So, eh, this is going to go badly, at point, you know. <laughs> but he doesn't. He'll just like, is it going to be this? You know, and and TV in particular is like, give me a date, give me a date, give me a time, and and he doesn't play that, uh, and and you know comes off as much more credible because he it is easier to predict one or the other. Probably a good lesson here too. We we all I'm sure to to some degree you could even even take that back into our homes. You know, I mean cleaning the house for example i mean let's go ahead and let's validate the direction let's confirm yes i will clean up the house date well that could get you into some trouble right getting a little bit too i don't want to get pinned down to a specific date let's take one thing at a time yes i will the house will have been cleaned 
within the next three weeks. At some point in the near future. <laughs> Uh, let's move over to the food industry. Uh, a little background first. A couple of weeks ago, uh, the big merger news was that Hillshire Brands was buying Pinnacle Foods in a deal valued at around $4.3 billion. Hillshire is the company behind Jimmy Dean Sausage, Ballpark Franks. Pinnacle owns Duncan Hines, uh, Hungry Man Frozen Dinners, Wishbone Salad Dressing, all that sort of thing. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago. Today, the big news is that shares of Hillshire Brands are up more than 20% after a third food company, Pilgrim's Pride, stepped in with an offer to buy Hillshire in a deal worth $6.4 billion. And part of the deal that is on the table being offered is that Hillshire Brands basically needs to drop the Pinnacle Foods acquisition. Not surprisingly, shares of Pinnacle Foods are down. This is, I mean... If you're looking at soap operas, this is about as good as it gets right now, and it comes in the packaged food industry, which is, uh, you know, frankly, a little refreshing. I like that this, you know, that there's this palace intrigue going on in the packaged food industry. Um, I am assuming that if you're Hillshire Brands, you are going to take the money and run. That you're going to like, why would you? Why would you walk away from this? Uh, I. I think uh, so. There was something built in to the deal with Pinnacle, where uh, Pinnacle gets a, a, a buyout for the deal falling through. So, I mean, that's that is all priced in to the the total package uh, for Pilgrim's Pride's offer. And it's you know, if if uh, Hillshire uh, investors are going to be better served by being acquired, um, then I think that's that's what you're likely to see. And uh, I think Pinnacle protected itself, knowing uh, there there was enough information out there for them to know that they, you know, as is often the case, uh, that they should be protected in case the deal falls through. So even though the shares are down a bit today on the news, six percent, that may not be reflecting appreciation of of the protection that Pinnacle has. We'll see over time. Um, there have been a number of mergers in both the packaged food industry and and other places where the, both the Acquirer and acquiree are are going up in price, um, and I think that's uh, you know likely to continue. But that Jason, to Bill's point, that was not the case a couple of weeks ago when that Hillshire deal for Pinnacle was first announced. Because at the time, Pinnacle shares were up. Hillshire was down on that news because there were people who looked at the deal and said, you know what. Pinnacle Foods might be worth acquiring, but not at that high a price. And so Hillshire kind of got dinged because people were like, hey, look, that's a lot of money to pay for a company that makes frozen dinners, cake mixes, and salad dressing. Yeah, and I mean, that's I think that's, that is that that is an interesting part of the deal is because you have to kind of look at the two entities and see how well they would they would combine together. I mean, are they, is it like a, you know, is it like a conglomerate where they're just all sort of their own little businesses and sort of dysfunctional, they don't really have anything to do with each other or is there some sort of of similarity there? Is there some sort of relationship there that that makes a little bit more sense? So I think you could be argued that with the Pilgrim's the Pilgrim's Pride Hillshire deal, you know, you have Pilgrim's Pride on the one side that is basically solely chicken uh, and, and then Hillshire which is is certainly Meat focused, uh, a bit more of a of, of focused portfolio versus something like a pinnacle. I mean, it certainly makes sense to bring those two together for for Pilgrim's Pride. It it diversifies their portfolio away from just being levered to chicken prices. And typically, you know, the interesting thing about about meat is you know you see beef, chicken, pork, and those 
those kind of they play they play on each other. So when you know demand for chicken is is high, I mean maybe demand for beef and pork isn't so high. And so prices sort of of ebb and flow there. And I think that this is something that gives Pilgrim's Pride a little bit more diversity. A little it mitigates a little bit of that you know chicken risk, so to speak. There, uh, it, Pilgrim's Pride runs on really really thin margins, and maybe that's another part of uh, of um, Hillshire that that they uh, like there is because of the 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 packaged and frozen foods and whatever they may sell uh, that are that are a bit higher margin it gives them you know a, a little bit more profitability maybe uh, to look forward to so I, I I don't see why you know I don't see any reason for the for the Hillshire Pinnacle thing to go forward I mean I think that breakup fee is going to be just a, a drop of the bucket you know, uh, you know it, it doesn't seem to be a great. Uh, celebration of of Hillshire's ma- management. If you know the the deal that they tried to put through uh, meant that the stock price took a hit, and now that they're being acquired, they're up twenty percent. Right. It seems like yeah. the the assets have a lot of value, and whether uh, management has been able to maximize their value uh, is more in question. And but I'd like to just throw this out to you. I'm looking at a uh, website right now, which is describing what um, Hillshire does and it it says that it provides meat centric food solutions to the retail <laughs> and food service markets and doesn't that just sound Good a little bit like too there. too soylent greenish a, a little <laughs> i mean it, it, it well there are two things meat centric food solutions it does have the the soylent green vibe but it also smacks of silicon valley where there is this desire on the part of a lot of companies as opposed to just saying, hey, this is what we do. This is the service we provide. This is, you know, there's this aggrandizement where it's like, oh, and we do, we provide these cloud based solutions, which, by the way, that's, I think everyone is just tacking on cloud based solutions onto whatever they're just, it's, you know, just like in 1998, it was, oh, we have a website. In 2014, it's, and we provide cloud based solutions because we want to make the world a better place. It's like you know what, you you sell packaged meat and it's pretty good and I, it's summertime and I like grilling it. That's enough for me. I don't need meat centric <laughs> solutions. I think also one thing to remember with Pilgrim's Pride is that seventy five percent of their shares outstanding are owned by JBS, which is I believe that's the largest meat producer in in the world. I think they're the largest, which obviously gives them a lot of, of financial uh, uh, resources there, and you. Think they've they've spent you know close to twenty billion dollars in acquisitions over the past decade. So that, that's yeah, Pilgrim's Pride. Uh, Pilgrim's Pride is a small part of that that larger entity there. And so this is going to be sort of you know again the merging and bringing more brands underneath that that one umbrella there. And really, I think that in food production in general, I mean that's a brutal business where scale. I mean really matters. It, it, it will it will behoove uh, you know the companies that are, that are able to to be part of something bigger and and then really uh you know to bill's point there on management i mean the deal is done that's fine but it's still going to be up to management to execute this on the cost side because ultimately that's the point here is a more diversified portfolio some better margin products and in in saving on the cost side and unless they if they don't save on the cost side well that's just a big missed opportunity before we started taping, we were talking about grills, gas grills, and so this this seems like a good way to wrap up today's market foolery. Uh, to wrap si- up every since yeah, since we're talking about meat, and it is you know it's now summertime. If I'm coming over to your place and you're grilling, what's what's something 
What's something you like to grill? Red meat. <laughs> just, just straight up red not, meat. Not meat-centric foods. It's red steaks. <laughs> Jason? So I like steaks. I'll go a little bit different here. I like firing up a good burger on the grill there. And, and the, the difference is for me that if you're not firing up a few good lengths of, of andouille sausage at the same time, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> Um, since I took some shots at him, I have to give credit to Ron Gross because uh, Ron is v- very handy uh, in the kitchen, very handy at the grill. And when I was um, preparing one of those meals that involved, um, among other things, in-laws. So, you know, you want to impress when the in-laws are coming over. You're not grilling them. No, no, no. <laughs> but grilling for them, um, yes. uh, Ron Gross uh, walked me through sort of his method of – Grilling the perfect steak, and uh, it was uh, it was strong. So I got to give for yeah. So you're just throwing that out. I'm I mean, just throwing you know, that out you're there. Just, like people want to. It's very scientific. Go back to an old episode and, and hear what you, how how it's done. Or I'll, you're just I'll, like you, you you dangle this carrot out there, and you know we'll wrap this up. We'll someday some we'll come to back to this. Keep, money, right? Yeah, or something keep like coming that. back. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. Bring Ron on. We'll bring Ron on at some point, and it'll, it, that'll be the whole episode. It'll be, it won't be stocks. It'll just be cooking tips with Ron Gross. And then it's like glass <laughs> awful. <laughs> Let's talk cooking. Exactly. And he's like, and yes. By, and by the way, that'll be our shows, most man. popular episode ever. Jason Moser, Bill Barker. Guys, thanks for being here. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.